0: So my, my wife and I have had the privilege of living in the same city as uh, my parents for one period of our life, and in, in, in the same city as her parents in one period of our life, uh, even though my parents live in Hong Kong and her parents live in North Carolina. So now in our phase of life, living in Iowa, really we have to make do with annual visits from the grandparents, um, really just once a year it ends up being. But whether we, when we were living with them in the same city or whether, you know, far away from them now, uh, we always kind of took on this attitude of like, we were fine if grandparents wanted to spoil our children. We weren't like, you have to make them follow these rules and do it our way. We're just like, just go, do whatever you want, you know. It doesn't matter. We just wanted our kids to have this great relationship with their grandparents and let grandparents do what grandparents do. And uh, it's the beauty of being grandparents, that you can just sugar up your, your, your grandkids, uh, fail to discipline them, and, uh, and just let them get away with stuff. And, uh, and it's fine, right? And then you just buy them the noisiest, most annoying toy you could possibly buy and send them home. Uh, to uh, the parents, right? And, you know, we have to deal with all the consequences of the sugar and the annoying toys and all of that. And Amber and I, again, we were just like, it's fine. Like, we just want our parents to be able to enjoy them and have fun with them and just enjoy that relationship. And so we, we know, we know as parents, we, we have so much time with them to instill the kind of beliefs and values and character that we hope we can... instill in them, we're not not worried about having to be the bad guys and the disciplinarians and just let grandparents enjoy what grandparents get to do of just enjoying their grandkids without having to worry about all that stuff. Uh, C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, that we don't really want a father in heaven. What we really want is a grandfather in heaven, a grandfather in heaven who just essentially says, what does it matter, really, as long as the grandkids are happy? What does it matter, really, if the, if, if the grandkids are happy? We would rather God not be about shaping our character, instilling his values into us, all the meanwhile drawing us close to his heart. We would honestly just rather he let us get away with stuff, turn a blind eye to the bad stuff, give us all the good stuff that we want, and just let us be who we are. And yet, God says, he's really concerned about our hearts, shaping our hearts into his likeness, drawing us close to himself. Tim Keller says this in his book, Reason for God. He says, a person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. One of the reasons why... I wanted to do this series is because it's just the reality. We all have doubts. Having faith in the broken world produces doubts. It's the journey of faith. And oftentimes, we don't give room to ourselves or as pastors, we don't give room to our congregation to have doubts. And the scary thing is, sometimes is we just white-knuckle faith for so long until it just all falls apart because we haven't reflected on those doubts as Tim Keller says. And so the reality is suffering makes us ask the big questions in life. And Habakkuk, his suffering and his complaints make us ask, ultimately, what is our hope? Maybe even for those of us in here who call ourselves Christians, functionally, we end up living out these philosophies in our life. We could live out the philosophy of the struggle is real, but stay positive. Or perhaps we live out, maybe if I don't talk about it or think about it, then it will go away. Or maybe we live out, life sucks, then you die. Or maybe we functionally live out, I'm too busy to ask those big questions, which usually ends up meaning you haven't experienced enough pain yet, which, praise God, you haven't experienced that level of pain yet to make you ask those big questions. Or perhaps the philosophy we live out is, when I blank then I will be happy. When I find a boyfriend, when I get the promotion, when I retire, when I get get that thing that I want so much, when I graduate from grad school, when I have the house to myself, then I will be happy. Or maybe, ultimately, your hope is this. Your hope is in relationship with God. Your hope is in the very relationship you have with God, the God who shows himself in Habakkuk to be the God of love and justice. And let me tell you, we want God to be the God of love and justice. If he is just the God of love, then perhaps he will just completely spoil us at the expense of others and our growth. If he is just the God of justice, then perhaps he will just always be very distant disciplinarian in our life but ultimately our hope is in relationship with God is what Habakkuk teaches us. And I hope what we'll see as we go through this text is this main point, that one day God will deliver you from your defining suffering, so rejoice in your relationship with God now. One day God will deliver you from your defining suffering, so rejoice in your relationship with God now. Let me say this. I mean, there's been, I don't know, five, five, five sermons on this. There really isn't much to say by this point, but I'll still manage to fill 30 minutes because I'm a pastor. But there's not a lot of fancy interpretation to these three verses. Um, and perhaps, I won't read it again, but perhaps we do get it a little bit better living in Iowa because it's very agricultural imagery, right? And so we get it a little bit better than uh, the coastal elites, um, that, hey, here in the breadbasket of Iowa, where we grow stuff for our country, where we grow stuff for the world, if the crop fails, it's bad news. It's bad news for the farmers. It's bad news for a lot of people. And basically, Habakkuk is saying, even if everything fails around him, he will still rejoice in God. Even if everything fails around him, he will still rejoice in God. And it reminds me of this Hillsong song song that I used to listen to a lot and sing a lot, which is called Christ Enough. Christ is enough. And the chorus of that song goes, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Um, Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. And of course, like every good Hillsong song does an incredible job of building this anthem and you just get the feels. But the sentiment is still beautiful. This idea of like our relationship with God is all that we need. That is enough. That is enough, our relationship with God. And I hope for all of us, as we go through life's trials, as life storms, that we can hold on to that very simple truth, that our relationship with God is enough. But as they say, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So Jesus is a great plan until suffering punches you in the face, and then you start feeling like Christ is not enough. And that's really Habakkuk. He's kind of feeling like God is not enough. He's questioning God. I rewrote these three verses in a little bit of a modern version, just really tongue in cheek a little bit, but just bear with me. Though the electricity should black out and there be no internet anymore, God forbid. Though the economy should fail and the stock market produce no gains, though the industry should collapse and there be no big ag to feed us, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will find happiness in the God who saves us. The God who is in control strengthens me, and he has made me sure-footed like the best free climber and makes me king of the world. Would you still rejoice in the Lord if everything around you failed? Would you still rejoice in the Lord if everything around you failed? I was really grateful for Rose and Randy this past week. We've been, uh, our church has been kind of growing in a ministry relationship with Greek InterVarsity, which is an InterVarsity chapter aimed at reaching fraternities and sororities. And something that they wanted to do was just to go out into the cold with socks and gloves and find homeless people and, you know, donate socks and gloves to them and pray for them. And they asked us if we would train them uh, in this endeavor. And so I, I gave them a 30-minute training right here in the sanctuary, but uh, right before they went out uh, last, last Friday. And, um, but that probably wasn't the important training. Uh, Rose and Randy went to their large group meeting on a Tuesday night, and they just shared their life story. They shared about what life was like for them before they were homeless, what life was like while they were homeless, and what life was like after they were homeless. And the leader at Greek IV shared that their students received Rose and Randy's words very heartily and, and gratefully. And I know Rose and Randy said themselves that they had really good experience just sharing their, their life experiences with them. And I wonder, you know, for the, the students who listened to Rose and Randy's story, um, whether it's easy just to think of Rose and Randy as the people to help. But Rose and Randy are incredible testimonies to us of having faith in God, rejoicing in God when life doesn't work out the way you had planned. And they bless us every day, every week, that they're a part of our congregation to demonstrate this very section of Habakkuk. How would you do in your faith if you lost everything that you cared for? Would you still rejoice in the Lord? Would you still find faith in him? The reality is we we none of us can know the answers to that question unless we have to go through it. Lament is real. And Habakkuk clearly teaches that we need to hear that again and again. Another kind of random story that I was encouraged by this week, but uh, I don't think either of them here, but Zephon and Katerina Hazel have a friend named India Johnson who is doing a, a Mass's thesis with uh, the Center for the Book, and she's doing these art installations and wanting to do one in our church, considering doing it. So one thing she printed out just as a sample was she took all of the Psalms of trust, and she printed them on the same sheet of, what's a cloth paper, cloth paper, over and over again, laying them over each other. So it was hard to read the words, really, but you kind of just get this imprint of all the Psalms of trust on one page. And then she did the same for Psalms of lament. She just printed them over each other again and again. And it was just, this was my own subjective experience relating to this piece of art was well, she just said, yeah, there's a lot more Psalms of Lament. I was like, yeah, that's true. And the experience of the piece of artwork was there was a lot more black on the Psalms of Lament page because they had been printed over and over and over again. And you could just kind of feel that there is the reality of darkness and suffering in life. What is a defining suffering for you in your life? What is a defining suffering in your life? Something that has such powerful possibility to shape you both for better and for worse. I came across this uh, interview between Anderson Cooper, a uh, journalist on CNN, and Stephen Colbert, a uh, comedian and host of Late Night Show, uh, whatever the name is of his show, one of the Late Night Shows. And I didn't, I didn't know this about their stories, but they had experienced great life-defining suffering. And I'm just gonna read some excerpts from um, this interview, and I encourage you to watch the whole thing. So Anderson Cooper says, your dad was killed in a plane crash. You were 10 years old, along with your two brothers, Peter and Paul, and they were the closest brothers to you in age. All right, my dad died when I was 10 too. It is such a horrible age to lose a father. I can't imagine losing both my brothers at the same time as well. For me, losing my dad then, it changed the trajectory in my life. I'm a different person than I feel like I was meant to be. And I feel like there are times I feel like I remember when I was 10, I felt like I marked time. To this day, I mark time between my father father while my father was alive and after. It's like the New Year Zero. It's like when Pol Pot took over Cambodia. And then Colbert responds. Little bits of it, then... Sometimes the transcript doesn't make sense. Uh, he was liking it to, like, it's like the music... Let me. I'll just read it, and it will make sense. Little bits of it, and then the thing that really, like music... I mean, let me forget that line. It's completely confusing. He says, they died, his his, his brothers and his dad, they died on September 11th, 1974. The music from that summer leading up to it, it will undo me in an instant. The song of the summer was band on the run. Do not play band on the run around me. Yes, you become a different person like I was just personally shattered. And then you kind of reform yourself in this quiet, grieving world that was created in the house. And my mother had to take care of me, which I think was sort of a gift to her. It was a sense of purpose at that point because I was the last child. But I also had to take care of her. It became a very quiet house and very dark. And ordinary concerns of childhood suddenly disappeared. I won't say I matured because that actually was kind of delayed by the death of my father by restarting at 10. But I had a different point of view than the children around me. A little bit later on, Anderson Cooper says, Colbert's Catholic, you told an interviewer that you have learned in your words, love the thing, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. You went on to say, what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? Now, this is really interesting if you watch the interview when Anderson Cooper's saying this, because you know he too has had great loss, because he could barely ask this question that he had planned to ask, because he's... Clearly, he's struggling with this idea of, like, how could you say this, Colbert? And Colbert says, yes, it's a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. I guess I'm either a Catholic or a Buddhist when I say those things. I've heard those from both traditions. But I did not learn it, that I was grateful for the thing I most wish hadn't happened. It's that I realized it, and it's an oddly guilty feeling. I don't want to have happened... I don't want to have happened, I want it to have not have happened. But if you're grateful for your life, which I think is a positive thing to do, not everybody is, and I'm not always, but it is the most positive thing to do, then you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for. And then, so what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love more deeply, and to understand what it's like to be a human being and how humans suffer. And so at a young age I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or my children that I understand that everybody is suffering and however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and love them in a deep way that not only And that not only accepts that all of us suffer, but also then makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people. And that's what I mean. I'm not quoting what Colbert said necessarily as like, this is what you should aspire for. When we hear someone like Colbert reflect on his own life-defining suffering, at least at this point in his life, it's something that he has processed 50 years, and he has arrived at this place, which sounds very peaceful, and he is someone who clearly has tried to wrestle in his faith, and he talks about God losing his son as well in the interview, but you see this, just this reality, suffering is real, and some of us have such life-defining sufferings that we have to wrestle so hard to make sense of it, And Habakkuk is trying to do that. And our Christian faith allows us to do that. Sometimes even contrary to what is told to us from pulpits. Sometimes suffering, it, it could be just one big thing that happened to you. Sometimes suffering is a thousand paper cuts of something that happens year after year. Sometimes suffering is suffering of an emotional, a mental state of mind that You can't seem to put behind. Sometimes suffering is being sinned against by others. And sometimes suffering is your own sin at work. And if you don't understand that suffering brings you suffering, then you don't understand what it means that God says sin is death. Sin brings death. Death for us, the one who commits sin. So C.S. Lewis says this. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a, a deaf world. There's really just a verse and a half here that I really want to focus on in, in this text. It's verse 18 and 19, where Habakkuk, right, this is his hymn of response. This is his end end word After all that he's processed, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. We see in the course of this book that Habakkuk has moved from from fear to faith. But we have to remember that what we've seen even in our brief five-week series is that this doesn't happen overnight overnight. For Habakkuk, this wasn't just like, "Okay, I decide to have faith now, and I fear no more." We saw how it's not this quick spiritual bypass of real emotions and doubts that we have. We see Habakkuk bring honestly his complaints to God. We see see Habakkuk wait patiently for the Lord to answer. We see Habakkuk. Emotionally worship God in response to God's answer. We see Habakkuk allowing himself to marinate in the awesomeness of God. And as I talked about last week, I don't mean that in the trite way. I mean that in God is the very definition of what it means to be awesome, to be deserving of our all. And it is through this spiritual journey that Habakkuk went through, that brought him to this point in the midst of his very life-defining suffering to be able to say that God is still his God. That Habakkuk proclaims, God is the God of my salvation. That Habakkuk in his heart has submitted to God and brought God near to his own heart. Habakkuk is not like perhaps the song, Crisis Enough, not just declaring that relationship with God is all he needs, although that is so central to believe anything. Habakkuk is declaring that he trusts in the awesome God who will save. He is the God of my salvation. He's the God who will save him and Israel from the suffering that they're experiencing. Habakkuk is declaring that he trusts in the promise of God to save. He, prom- he trusts in God being the divine warrior who will bring justice one day. And in verse 19, Habakkuk goes on to say, God, the Lord is my strength. And some translations translate this as the sovereign Lord is my strength. He's trusting in the God as being the one who is in control of all things, even when it doesn't make sense to trust that God will make sense of all that doesn't make sense that God will make things right, that the sovereign Lord is the one who is committed to this covenant relationship with him. And so Habakkuk too will commit his heart to be in relationship with God. In the end, the call of the book of Habakkuk is this simple call for all of us to trust God in the midst of what may be our lives most defining suffering and to stop just shaking our fists in the heavens and saying, God, why do you allow this? But To come face to face with a living God and see that he is with us, that he cares for us, and that he will deliver. How can we trust God when sometimes it seems like Christ is not enough? Trust always is built on relationship. And God has initiated and pursued and sustains relationship with us. But we must respond to him as well. He's revealed himself to be a good and just and holy and loving and powerful God. But he's not distant. He has come very near to us through Jesus Christ. If he were distant, then We would have reason to continue to fear and doubt. But he is not distant. He has come so close to us that he is in us. That he has given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. So that in any moment of fear or doubt that we think he is distant and just intends to punish. That we can remember that his very presence is in us. How can we die or continue in despair when God is in us? And there is a journey to take a hold of that truth. I'm not saying it just goes away, the doubts, but that is the journey that God has us on. He has come near to us through his death on the cross, paying for the penalty for our sins, giving us the perfect righteousness that he lived so that it might be considered ours, raising from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death so that we might no longer be ruled by it, and then filling us with the Holy Spirit so that we might continue to be delivered from the power of sin in our life so that we have this inheritance inside of us through the Holy Spirit to trust that Jesus will bring his work to a close one day. I want to end with this little bit of long quote from C.S. Lewis again from Problem of Pain. He says this, let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for a moment, that God, who made these deserving people, may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed, that all this must fall from them in the end, and if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched, and therefore he troubles them, God troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. The life to themselves and their family stands between them and the recognition of their need. He makes that life less sweet to them, this happy family life that we all dream of. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to Him and come to Him because there's nothing better now to be had. C.S. Lewis is very good at reminding us that we exist not on just a time scale of 80 years, but we exist on a time scale of eternity. And so ultimately, when we ask the question, what is our ultimate hope? It has to be relationship with God. That is our ultimate hope. He is the one who has made relationship with him accessible through Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us a firm foundation for our hope for life to the full for all eternity with him. Suffering will not have the last word. God will. Redemption will. We are the ones who were once rebellious, who've been restored into relationship with God. And God in this life moves us from distrust to trust, from complaint to confidence, from fear to faith. That is the journey that we are all on. And it's an up and down roller coaster journey. But that is the journey that we're all on throughout our life. And I hope what you take from the book of Habakkuk is that your doubts and your questions and the suffering you go through are very real laments that you should bring to God and trust that God and only God and relationship with God is the, is the thing that will resolve the very question that we shake our fist at God about. There is nothing else. There is no one else who can answer that question in the way that God can. Let's pray.